Hello and welcome to the United MEC Leading Edge podcast. Today we continue our new series called Piloting Your Mind. I'm the United MEC spokesman, Captain James Belton. Today's episode will focus on mental resilience. We are joined again by Sean Handlevich from United's Human Factors and Pilot Development Team. Here with Sean is one of our United Airlines pilots, First Officer Gary Kling. Gary is an A320 instructor pilot at our training center, and he is here to talk more in depth about how he was able to remain resilient during a career in the United States Marine Corps. Gary will also share resilience techniques that he uses and teaches here at United. Gary, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, thanks, Jim. Uh, as you said, I spent about uh, 30 years in the uh, United States Marine Corps, uh, various different uh, tours in aviation, as well as the ground units and uh, staff positions. Um, and I was fortunate to serve with some uh, very you know, great Marines and sailors. And um, the things that they teach uh, in the Marine Corps uh, and all the services really uh, are part of leadership training. And as a part of that, and specifically as a commanding officer, you undergo some uh, additional training for resiliency, uh, both as an individual, as a family, and of course, as a unit or an organization. So uh, in addition to that, over the years, I taught a class on combat ethics uh, to young aspiring, uh, or not yet aspiring, but young uh, officers. And uh, I've also been involved with uh, substance abuse counseling and some uh, uh, post-traumatic winning is a program that a buddy of mine teaches. So uh, over the years, you know, just like every person, we all had our ups and downs and and the things that uh, the Marine Corps has uh, given me as tools have, uh, have come in handy both then and now. I know you will further define resiliency, Gary, and how it applies to your past experience at United and the pilot knowledge base that you have. Can you include those interesting buzzwords we just heard, combat ethics and post-traumatic winning? That sounds uh, interesting to me. Yeah, the combat ethics was a class for uh, uh, for young officers that were heading out to the fleet. Uh, m- most likely, would be engaged in combat within six months to a year, and it was about how are you going to make combat-related decisions, decisions that are going to change their life forever. Uh, and there's no real way to train for some of the things that we're asking young men and women to do there. So, it was a discussion to facilitate uh, how do you maintain your composure in a chaotic you know, volatile, uncertain situation. Uh, and most importantly, how do you maintain your moral compass and not become a savage uh, and have mental clarity and focus uh, during times of extreme stress and duress? And then have enough spiritual armor, as we call it, similar to body armor, but spiritual armor to protect yourself uh, such that you would keep your honor clean, as we say in the Marine Corps, uh, all while executing your mission. And you become home whole without any mental uh, or physical uh, injury. So that's uh, that was combat ethics. Post-traumatic winning, a good friend of mine, Mike McNamara, runs a podcast called All Marine Radio, and uh, it was founded based on the principle of helping struggling veterans. Uh, they could be struggling from stress, family, combat, uh, unfortunately, uh, lots of suicide. And he talks to various Marine uh, and uh, other military groups on his radio show, and he goes out and he teaches what a program that he calls post-traumatic winning. And it's about uh, no, no stress disorder, not, not, not post-traumatic. It's not a disorder. It's just life. And life throws some curveballs once in a while. And how do you overcome those? And it's really all the same things we're talking about today. Resiliency, having a network, 
and, uh, and working hard and practicing it deliberately so you can overcome adversity in your life. Certainly you're touching on what the entire world is experiencing right now with our COVID crisis. I would like to further focus on our pilot stressors and why we need to be more resilient in terms of our professional and our personal lives here at United. Yeah, well, I mean, just like any profession here at United, uh, we all have our, uh, our stress. And uh, I don't see really resiliency as, uh, as specific to any function. You know, family members, kids, wives, spouses, uh, pilots, we're all the same. And uh, if you want uh, your life to be the most fulfilling, uh, you need to have resiliency. And the only way to have that is to practice it in a deliberate manner, just like flying an airplane, just like practicing in a simulator. Um, but it's really simple. Uh, stress and trauma are going to invade your life. There's no doubt. So take the energy of those and uh, change the, tra the trajectory of how you viewed them and make for a better life. Because uh, as we say in the core, life's a contact sport. You know, you're going to get bumped and bruised along the way. So uh, take that energy, refocus it, help someone else, and that'll help you be a better person. So uh, United Airlines is no different than any other organization I've worked with or for in that regard. And we break it down in the military, short-term and long-term resiliency. But that's the same way we do in any organization. We have short-term resiliency in simulator training to try and overcome an upset. And then we have long-term resiliency, trying to overcome uh, family stressors and time away from home and uh, all the other things that, uh, that an airline pilot um, may be faced with. Sean, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, I was thinking uh, with the training that we do here um, at the Flight Training Center, we're seeing the pilots that have this resilience uh, that Gary's talking about, um, and they're continuing that lifestyle and that mentality because life does happen, but they're sharing that and they're creating that type of mindset at home too, because the changes when you're home and the changes when you get back are not only challenging for you, but they're also challenging for the family members and your friends. Um, as well as your stick partner and your flying partner. And we only, we don't share any more than most people share. So we just have to be mindful and be present that everybody's got these stressors and we can always set out to be an example of that, just like Gary is. And just like we've seen so many of our other pilots, you know, paying it forward and using it as an example. Apparently uh, there's a story we had uh, Rob Strickland on last uh, podcast and he overheard a story, Gary, that you, uh, you had uh, been telling during a standards meeting. Can you share that? Uh, yeah, I can share. I'll give you the short version of that story, uh, Jim. Thanks. Be before I get into that, let me just back up for a second. And, and, you know, you asked specifically, maybe I didn't answer your question about uh, what's, what's different about pilot stress and the, and the things that are different uh, right now, obviously uh, everyone has the same stress in their life, traffic, teenagers, finances. And then this COVID rolled in, as you alluded to that, you know, everyone's going through this, the world is injury and death for some family members. Uh, and then when you top throw on top of that, you know, simulator check rides we see when folks uh, show up to the training center and now possibly displacement and or furlough. Um, but two things about stress before I get into that story that are important, I think, are um, there's a lot of things in life you will never get over. And when we hear about stress uh, and trauma, and a lot of people think 
well, you'll, you'll get over it. And that's just not how stress works. You're never going to get over the loss of your mother when you were a kid. You're never going to get over the loss of your sister freezing to death on the streets of Chicago. You're never going to get rid of some of these things. That's how it happens. You know, that's life. And the other thing that I think is important, literally right before this phone call, I was on the phone with a Navy buddy of mine who lost, uh, or not lost, he, he, he lost a short-term battle with leukemia. I mean, literally, I, half hour ago, I got off the phone. He lost, he cut off all the fingers on one hand, half his foot, his large intestine. And you know what? I talked to him and he said, hey, I'm doing good because I, I had a network and I had a focus and I had small goals. And, wow. and here's a guy who's got self-discipline and he's moving forward. He's not wallowing. He's moving forward. I, I just think that those are two critical aspects of that. You're not unique. Everyone has stress and someone probably has it worse than you. And his, you know, Thad is his name. His last year has been hell. And you know, I talked to him and, and you would have never known uh, anyway, but to answer your question about Rob's story, I was sitting in the back of the uh, uh, standards meeting and, and, uh, I guess he overheard me talking on a break. I was talking with a, another Marine buddy of mine. You know how we stick together, right, Jim? And yeah. uh, I, was, <laughs> I was telling him about a story of a fr another friend of ours uh, that we were in Iraq together, and he was uh, grievously injured uh, from a, uh, during a firefight in Iraq. And he was you know, bleeding out pretty bad and uh, having difficulty maintaining conscious. And one of the team members turned to him and said, hey, no one's coming to get you. And that's exactly what he needed at the time. Uh, and it sounds callous uh, as you're bleeding out and uh, potentially going to die. But in one short sentence, it reminded us of the keys that we in the military uh, have talked about over and over in our preparation for combat. We didn't show up there not thinking about resilience. We prepared for it. And those, those key ingredients were have a mission, know your mission, be focused, have a purpose your purpose was to be part of that fire team and execute. You're your brother's keeper. So we're all counting on you. You can't lay down now because we're going to get overrun and all die. So manage your energy. In other words, uh, I'm not asking you to get up and, and, and move, but I am asking you to get behind that gun and start shooting and then set priorities. I don't care how small they are in life, set some and work towards them and execute. And we always say prioritize and execute and act. And then have faith and, faith and trust in your team. And that one little, whatever it is, six or seven word sentence was what snapped him out of a combination of severe pain, shock, uh, and uh, extreme physical duress. And, and that story is what, uh, what got Rob to wrangle me in and uh, talk to Sean. <laughs> so that's a, that's a great story. And I'm, I'm going to go a, a little bit off script here and, uh, and, and just tell you, I was in Iraq five times. I'd like to talk to you about it later on as to where you were. And, and it reminds me of a personal story that I had. I uh, flew F-16s in Iraq. And I remember going out to the jet, uh, one of my first combat sorties in my uh, flight lead. I kind of said under my breath, well, I don't know if I can do this. And uh, I was half kidding, but uh, he looked at me and he said, well, maybe you can, but you got the rest of your life to figure it out. And that, that story that you just told kind of reminded me, hey, it is time to make yourself resilient when you're faced with those types of things. There was no one that was going to get me out of the responsibility of flying a combat mission that I had trained and been ready for. But, uh, but back to our, our, our point here today, there are keys to being resilient. So um, from those keys, where do you see, where do they come from, Gary? 
Well, in the in the military, and I'll speak specifically to the the Marine Corps, but you know everyone has a model, and there's plenty of models out there. And what I would tell you is pick one and use it. I've used the, uh, the Marine Corps leadership traits and principles for 30 years now. Even before I went in the Corps, my brother was a Marine, made me memorize the leadership traits and principles. The ones I was talking about, mission focus, those, those are born out of uh, lessons learned from our Vietnam prisoners of war uh, and have been studied for 40 plus years now because that group of POWs that lived in the Hanoi Hilton uh, the most, probably the most famous, uh, you know, prison camp. Um, they were studied for 40 years. And in the case of those, those 40 in that study, they determined that in any war since then, there's never been a lower percentage of a group of, of, of people under severe stress with a lower percentage of PTSD. They had 4% PTSD compared to 30% of all the rest of the war. And these were men that lived in iron shackles uh, four to six years to as many seven years. And they were led by, as you know, well know, Admiral Stockdale. And Stockdale, before he went to Vietnam as a, as a fighter pilot or attack pilot, he had studied at Stanford and uh, part of that study was philosophy. And he was a big uh, believer in the Stoicism and Stoics. And one of those is uh, Epictetus. And Epictetus, you know, as he was floating down in his after being shot down, he said, you know, I'm, I'm leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus. And he knew because he had prepared, and this is the key to resilience. He had prepared that it's not what's based on Epictetus. It's not what happens to you. It's how you view what happens to you. And your attitude is, is completely defines your initial reaction. And then your long-term ability to sustain, withstand, and then become resilient uh, at the backside of it. And so uh, the prisoner, he wasn't the most senior guy. Most people think uh, uh, Stockdale was the most senior uh, POW, and he wasn't. But he became a leader because of these keys that he espoused and, and the, the, him and the rest of the, uh, uh, the POWs had developed over the time. And uh, it was a, it's an amazing story. Uh, it just so happens that my, uh, uh, the lady I used to rent a room from when I was uh, – working in the Pentagon, she wrote th this book called Lessons Learned from the Hanoi Hill, Six Characteristics of High-Performing Teams. Her name is Taylor, and uh, she did uh, extensive research into this. Uh, but it's a great book if anyone is looking for a book to uh, to learn about a little bit of resilience. I just get so captivated. I could sit and listen to Gary forever. These stories are just so inspirational. And it makes me think about the other professionals that I work with in the other industries. So our first responders, law enforcement, and they have unique outcomes to their stressful um, situations. Um, but generally they're just like Gary saying that they go into it being resilient and prepared for it, but it's the afterwards. It's the PTSD from the memories um, of the visceral uh, remnants of what had happened and what those events were uh, that they participated in. But the resilience uh, that Gary defines, those are, those are traits that our pilots um, use as well. Uh, you know, Sean, that's a great point. Most, um, it's funny, going back to the, the Hanoi Hilton, when they started studying the, uh, the prisoners of war, uh, there's this place in, uh, in Pensacola, Florida, and it's called the Mitchell Institute or something like that. But uh, the Mitchell Institute was going to 
they gave personality tests to all the POWs that returned. And when they, when they had analyzed these, they came up with these five character traits. And they were going to try and use them to define why was it that they were so resilient? Why did they have such low PTSD? Um, could we use this for recruiting purposes to, to further recruit people who have this high level of resiliency for combat operations, et cetera? And what they defined is most, by the way, most of them were aviators or pilots in, in United speak, but aviators and naval aviation speak. Um, and they found these five uh, A's is what they called them. And they were aggressiveness. They were uh, adventure. They were adventurous people, adaptability. Uh, and the last two were what was most unique. And that was, they were both highly ambitious people. At the same time, they were highly prone to affiliation, which are normally polar opposites when you discuss uh, high achieving people, they wanna do it on their own. But this combination of ambition and affiliation is what many of the folks in hindsight uh, attribute to the success of the POWs and coming home whole. And, and uh, it's just an interesting thing. So that, that, uh, that those character traits that you were talking about, Sean, were born out of you know, this, this study of the six characteristics and those six characteristics are, they're well documented in this book, but they're the same. If you read uh, business books on resilience or any other book, it's just another model. It's said maybe a different way, but those characteristics were, Hey, mission first, have a mission, know the mission. This gives a person purpose that could be flying for United airlines. That could be taking care of your family. That's a mission. It doesn't have to be this frontline combat mission. Everyone has multiple missions. Right. And then you're, you're your brother's keeper, right? The whole do unto others, but take, look out for your, your teammates, look out for, it's just common sense. The third one that they, they used in the, in the POW camp was think big and basically, and that think big and basically was really to say, keep it simple, make sure you have a, a focus. And they, they, they developed their own uh, mantra. It was return with honor. They were going to return whole and with honor. They didn't break the code. They didn't break their, their will, they came home and they, they were all super successful, right? Senators, congressmen, et cetera. If you, if you move that forward in the Marines, you know, 60 years later, first Marine division, we had a mantra, no better friend, no worse enemy. You know, we'll be your best friend or your worst enemy. You decide. When we went back into OIF two, after OIF one, we, the, the commanding general, general Mattis, who I used to work for, he tagged on part of the doctor's oath, you know, first do no harm. We're not there for full combat. We're there for rebuilding. But the point is, have a big basic theme of your organization, your unit, or your own uh, beliefs. Uh, I'll hit the, the the third one was, or the fourth one was, uh, what it's called in the in the book is called "Don't piss off the turnkey," and the turnkey was the guy that came around and brought you your food, and which was very little, and maybe some dirty water in the POW camp, and. Stockdale, when he landed there, espoused to all the other people, like, don't, don't get mad at this guy. He's a low level. All he can do is make your life more miserable by not bringing food. Save your energy. Manage your energy. Focus on the things that you can change, not that you can't. And again, it goes back to his, his belief in Epictetus and Stoicism. And then the last two are pretty simple. Keep the faith. Have a faith. Believe in something. I don't care if it's uh, a religion or whatever, but you got to believe in something bigger than you. And that's in the military, we talk about spiritual armor and having some form of spiritual armor that you can rely on when there's nothing else left, uh, when hope is the only, the last course. And then the power of we is what we, every organization talks about. Have a team, 
understand that you're part of the team. You have to do your job for the team and you have to do it extremely well, but the power of the team is more powerful than the individual. So those are the six characteristics. Gary, some of our pilots may be a little reluctant to embrace various concepts that we've mentioned in our podcast. Can you dispel some of the myths about resiliency and mindfulness and help us relate to that? I mean, I say this tongue in cheek, but I'm a fighter pilot. I don't need this touchy feely stuff, right? Uh, Well, the problem with that statement is you don't know until you, it's too late. It's like anything, right? Yeah. Um, uh, if you, if you think that you're going to go through life unscathed, then you're right. But the guy I just got off the phone with didn't know eight months ago, he was going to lose his right hand, his left foot, his large intestine. And literally uh, 45 minutes ago, he told me if it wasn't for my family and the network and for small goal setting, I wouldn't be here talking to you. This was 45 minutes ago. Right. So I find it ironic uh, and that the ego of some thinks that they will never face more adversity than they have in their life. And that the older we get, the less adversity we'll have. Um, I lost my mom when I was young, but a lot of people our age are losing their parents. You never get over that, you know? So anyway, I digress slightly, but people with the military background, like you, we all had resiliency training, whether you knew it or not. And a lot of folks think that resiliency training is this touchy feely, uh, that's just not the case. Flight school was resiliency training. United Airlines pilot UPRT is resiliency training. The whole CRM TEM model that we can talk about later is resiliency training. SEER school, combat training, anything that was built to push your physical, your emotional boundaries so that you learned what mental toughness is, you learned what to do next time, and you gained confidence and competence in your ability. That all turns into grit when you have to face adversity. And uh, so I find it humorous. Even the guys that weren't in the military, they all went through flight school. They were all critiqued on everything they said, did, debrief for hours. They were all taught how to compartmentalize, focus, rely on their training, prioritize, right, and execute, and, uh, and use your resources. We call it CRM here. It's just how you deliver the material. Um, but I find it ironic when people say, oh, I'm not going to embrace human nature and face adversity. I'm like, really? You must live in a bubble. Uh, you know, who wants to lengthen their recovery, suffer more, live a less fulfilling life, not be able to help your family? You know, I don't know anyone that. And if I do, I'm not certain, certainly not hanging around with them. So, yeah, it matters how it's delivered for sure. But the idea of being mentally tougher, stronger, being able to help others recover, which is what I was doing before this phone call, what's not to embrace? I mean, it, it sounds to me like a pretty good life. I love that. I do. I think you're absolutely spot on. And Gary, the other part that I know that you have been exposed to and that our pilots are exposed to on different levels is depression and the mental health side of uh, the rippling effect after or during. And these tools that you're talking about are so relevant that, you know, it's unfortunate for your friend, but it's amazing how powerful he's coming back and his resilience, but that he speaks about his network and his family and that support. That's the same thing for mental health. That's the same thing for depression. That's the same thing we need when we get into a funk. Um, That's the same recovery process. And that's where the mental toughness comes in. It's a choice to be optimistic. It's a choice to reach out to your, your network of people. You know, these are actions that we have to take to survive 
And right. that's a choice of being deliberately resilient. Yeah, you know, going back to the myths, uh, I've heard, that, you know, the same thing you said, Jim, you know, I was a fighter pilot and, and that's great. And, you know, and there's this myth out there that resiliency is for weak people. And so then I line up who does resiliency training as an organization. And the U.S. Army does master resiliency training. The U.S. Marine Corps does operational stress control and resilience training for their families and the Marine. The U.S. Navy SEALs do resiliency training. They do things like visualization, self-talk, focus, uh, mental preparedness. This is all pre-adversity, right? You're not waiting to adversity and then trying to put a bandage on it. They're doing it in, and, and then probably the toughest group that I know is a military spouse. And you know that, right? You're gone for, at one point, I was gone 20 out of 27 months. My, daughter, my wife was home with four kids under six. Oh, yeah. My wife had, uh, had three boys, and uh, yeah. one of them accidentally broke her nose when I was on a, uh, a deployment. Talk about resiliency, right? I yeah. couldn't have done that. You know, I would love to say that, oh, yeah, I was in combat, and that was tough. I wouldn't have lasted four weeks with four kids under six, right? <laughs> um, but the point is, you know, is it for the weak? Uh, resiliency training is for the strong. It couldn't be for the myth is so 180 out if you prepare for it. POWs are the most resilient group that we've ever studied longitudinally. Uh, and I've never called Stockdale or anyone else weak, you know, and I never would. Um, and then the fact of the matter is they say, well, okay, it's for the weak. Well, then why'd you go to flight training? You know, cause that's resiliency training. Um, so I think ego accounts for much of that myth. And, and I feel bad for the person that didn't prepare. You know, there's a saying, as you know, the only thing worse than not testing yourself in combat is showing up unprepared. And it's even worse after it if you were unprepared, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. So uh, I, I cancel that myth right off the top of the list. The other one that they always say is, well, you know, you can't teach it. You either have it, you were born with it. Well, then why did your parents say make lemonade out of lemon, right? They were trying to teach you something early on. So if, if, if it was the case where we didn't get better, then we'd only have a one-flight syllabus in the training center. We wouldn't t send guys through emergency training multiple times because you were obviously as good as you're going to get handling a complex emergency, the first one. So, you know, the fact of the matter is they just didn't think about that when they said it couldn't be taught. Not only that, but there's, you know, 30 years worth of research at university of Pennsylvania. Uh, like I said, the Mitchell studies at Naval aviation, UPRT has tons of uh, uh, the upset prevention recovery training. They have tons of NASA human factor science, in the impacts of startle and the reaction that you have when you're startled. So the CREM-10 model is nothing more than a resiliency model, you know? And again, if you're, someone's looking for a model and they don't have one in their life or a philosophy now, use it. So uh, as aviators, you know, we all, we all live on this four levels of learning, right? Rote memorization, understanding, application, correlation. And a lot of people think because they read about a book about resiliency, that's level one of learning. They don't have to understand it. Or even if they do understand it, they don't have to apply it or, or correlate it or practice it. You know, again, good luck when uh, real adversity hits you. So uh, the complicated touchy-feely one that you said, uh, I'm going to help you out, Jim, okay? It's, it's common sense, okay? <laughs> Resiliency training for the Marine Corps might be more common sense because maybe we're not that intellectually uh, rigorous, okay? We're known for doing pull-ups, not uh, calculus. But – the, the, the end of the day is there's nothing complicated about it. It's common sense put into common practice. And lots of people have common sense. They just don't practice it. 
right? We've all, you know, we've all probably seen that. So, you know, you went to SEER school as an Air Force pilot, and uh, that that was probably the least touchy-feely event of your adult life up to that point. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that was not comfortable. We'll put it that way. <laughs> so, so when, when people say, oh, it's touchy-feely, I said, well, you know, you choose to deliver it to the people that, that need it. But SEER school, Survival Evasion Resistance Escape School, is the least touchy-feely school and the most uh, painful a week of your entire life, uh, hopefully. And I say hopefully because those who had to use it, it wasn't the worst week. But again, it's not touchy-feely. Um, if you ever read, you know, a great uh, book, Elizabeth Smart, you know, if you read her uh, Living with Trauma book, you know, this is the girl that was kidnapped and held for nine months. She was uh, in Utah, right? The girl in Utah? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing touchy-feely about that story. And no. that's one of the most inspiring stories of resilience you could ever read, you know? So uh, anyway, uh, it, what's funny is every single movie ever made, ever made is about resilience. Have you ever seen one that says, oh yeah. And then he faced adversity and then that's the end of the story. He didn't come back. Right. Rocky, yeah. Rambo, the, Lion yeah. King. I don't care what the you good, look at. The good movies anyways. Right. Yeah. There, there's not a single one. Right. Right. And, and they're like, oh, it's touchy feely. Well, it's only as touchy-feely as you make it. So don't make it touchy-feely. Yep. At the end of the day, Patton, you know, said it well, a pint of sweat is worth a gallon of blood in combat. So, you know, put your pint of sweat in uh, or suffer the consequences and do so um, at your own you know, prerogative. But anyway, the other, the other one you always get is, oh, yeah, uh, this would be good for a friend. Right? That's the person who's afraid to stick their neck out and say, you know what, I could use some more of that. And I get, my brother gets this all the time. My brother uh, does uh, mental health, uh, drug addiction counseling and, uh, and, uh, and he's qualified because he was a drug addict. Right. And so he gets this all the time. Yeah. You know, I'm just calling for a friend. Uh, I wanted to get, uh, well, if you're not going to take responsibility for your own life, then there's no reason to do resilience training. Right. Because it takes responsibility, sure. self-discipline and willpower. Uh, but I like saying, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't need more resilience. Someone else does, but you know, that's like being too fit or too rich uh, or, and you never heard an airline guy say that, right? Oh yeah. I wouldn't, <laughs> right. I, I wouldn't want to make more money and sure. I don't want any more resilience. God, that would be terrible. Right. Yeah. Like I, said I think before, it's, it's, it's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. So can you imagine a POW three years into an unknown duration? Say, you know what? I think I got enough resiliency. I'm good. I'm not going to, I'm not going to practice. I'm not going to get on the wall and tap and communicate with my teammates anymore. Well, there actually were some of those and they died Yeah. and they're not here anymore. So that's the, the auditor of not having resilience is pretty clear in their situation. Yeah. Don't have resilience. Don't gut it out. Don't work harder. And uh, yeah, it's just a shorter life. So enjoy it. I'm just going to go back to your point, Gary, where you were talking about it's only as bad as you think it is and that somebody out there may have something worse and it's all relative. And when we're judging each other's um, struggles or challenges, we run the risk of really making ourselves, uh, we're separating each other, basically. And that's harder to, to heal. It's harder to, like we said, we need our team, we need our resources, uh, but Thoughts are just thoughts. That's it. So your perspective of something is a whole story that comes from your previous experiences 
to this or something like it. And your response to that is going to drive your reaction, which is going to ultimately impact the results. When you are aware of your perspective and whether it's helpful, beneficial or not, um, that's where the controlled thoughts and awareness to your perspective and what you're putting out there or the uncontrolled thoughts to just letting those things overwhelm you and then it takes you down. Um, but it, I just wanted to hit on that, that it really is important that you understand it's about your perspective of it. How bad is it? As bad as you say it is. That's right. Uh, yeah. What I like about Sean, and I started, I met her a couple months ago and she puts it uh, very eloquently in scientific terms. And then you hear from the Marine. Sorry about that. But I dumb it down. Uh, but that traumatic instance fallacy, I know it's a shock that a Marine would know what that is, but we found that out when we came back from Iraq that we sent a psychologist around the Marine base and the psychologist walked around and talked with 17,000 Marines and came back to general Mattis. And that was after OIF one very kinetic uh, combat operation rushing to Baghdad. And then she came in his office and we're sitting there and he says, uh, well, what did you find out in a week talking to us Marines? And she said, you've got a problem. He said, okay, I'm listening. And he, she said, your, your, your division, your 17,000 Marine division has traumatic instance fallacy. And he said, what, er, what every Marine would say, what the hell is that, right? <laughs> so she went on to explain that it, they all lived a traumatic event in OIF-1. It was only one instance where this has happened. And then it's a fallacy that going back into Iraq, it will be the same. And they're projecting these thoughts and these reactions forward. And that's dangerous when you're going back to a different mission. And that's this blind spot that so many people have that, that Sean just talked to that just because something happened before doesn't have to be the way it is again. And, and conversely, if you overcame something, then put that in your, in your pickup file, as we call it, my good file. Everyone should have this good file that says, I'm having a bad day, but look at all these accomplishments I've had. I've overcome this before. My friend did. So anyway, that's just one of many blind spots, but I think it goes to your point, Sean. That if, if you don't have an accurate perception, and that's what Epictetus was all about. If you don't have an accurate perception of the situation in aviation, we call it situational awareness, right? We prize ourselves as aviators, as pilots at United, that we have good situational awareness. And if you don't, well, then guess what? Uh, you're not going to make the right decisions and you can't execute, prioritize and execute accurately. So, well, the, uh, I learn a lot from, from these, uh, these podcasts uh, reminds me of uh, when I used to go out to do my missions at night, night vision goggles. I used to tell myself it's always darker in my mind. And what I meant by that was, <laughs> was that when I get out there, I, I think what's going to happen, but when the night vision goggles turn on, it's actually not as bad as, as I thought it was going to be. I just needed to train myself. And that, that little, uh, I guess that little statement before I stepped to the jet that all it's always darker in my mind helped me out. And now in keeping with the theme of our last podcast, we've just become mindful of the resilient, the resiliency techniques that, uh, that I know that I received in survival school and combat training and that, uh, that each of our pilots receive when they visit our training center. So we thank you for that, Gary. I'd like to shift gears a little bit now. Um, we're on the doorstep of many furloughs and pilots' livelihoods and careers are in jeopardy uh, here due to the COVID pandemic. So Gary, what, 
What do you see as some of the steps to building resilience when faced with this type of, of adversity, you know, especially of this kind? Uh, well, I think that uh, it's no different than any other kind. Like, as I said before, I think that you've got to have a, a clear, uh, pragmatic, unemotional perspective of what the situation is. All right, I'm being displaced or I'm being furloughed. Uh, and that, again, that's situational awareness or self-awareness, whatever. And then you got to be flexible and adaptable. And uh, what am I going to do about it? And a lot of times we start to uh, think about not what happened or my feelings. And quite frankly, uh, I would suggest you don't think about your feelings and think about what kind of identity am I, who am I, and what action do I plan to take? Uh, and, and I know it may sound callous or Marine-like, but uh, have your time and then move on. Okay. Uh, but reframe the problem as a challenge, reframe it as an opportunity and go after it. And the harder the challenge, uh, the more effort it's going to take and make no mistake. I'm not talking about, you know, touchy feely. It's not going to take work. It's going to take extreme work, self-discipline, willpower, grit. Um, but you have to have a confidence and a belief that you can overcome it. Okay. So I was displaced. All right. I'll go, you know, go to the other seat. I'll have a good attitude and I'll work hard and maybe there'll be another opportunity. Maybe I'll meet great people there. Um, so what, what we would use in the military, and I think it's good in life, and this is where people say, well, that's too touchy-feely. They image their way through the problem. And I guess it's too touchy-feely for guys like Tom Brady, who images his way through the past. It's too, you know, it was too much for Michael Phelps to swim the races he's done a thousand times, for Tiger Woods to imagine and visualize every shot. They teach that, by the way, to elite special forces all over the world, as well as self-talk, where when something happens, instead of going to a blog and listening to a bunch of cynical, sarcastic, you know, uh, negative opinions, they self-talk and they say, all right, uh, here's what's in front of me. I can do this. I've done it before. I've done something harder. So that's one of them. The other one we talked about roughly is don't have a blind spot. Don't let burnout lead to complacency. Don't let loneliness or isolation as your time away uh, and you're sitting in a hotel room on a layover be uh, a negative attribute. You know, use your time uh, focused on your mission. And your mission is to support your family or do whatever it is, but have that sense of purpose. And um, you, know, you can do a whole podcast on uh, identity and self you know, purpose, but Go create something for yourself. Don't just sit there. So uh, if I said anything, it'd be situational awareness. Have a mission and a sense of purpose. This is all the same stuff you learn in the military. Uh, have a team focus, whether that's your family, your faith, your crew, whatever it is, and set small goals. Don't try and eat the elephant in one bite. Set small goals. If today you can only walk you know, 15 minutes, then do it. And then tomorrow, 16. If today you need to make a new resume because you got furloughed, then do it today. Don't put it off to tomorrow. Don't wallow. You know, uh, you, you've heard Churchill's famous quote, if you're going to go through hell, go through fast, right? Uh, don't wallow, don't sit in it, because it's not going to get any better not doing anything. And then, you know, the last two would be prioritize and execute. That's what you hear in, uh, in high-performing teams. Make priorities and execute on them. And then improvise, improvise, improvise. No plan survives first contact with the enemy in your life, in your family, in an airplane emergency. So... Uh, you know, keep prioritizing. One of the things that not all 
folks are good at is prioritizing their expenses. And their expenses, what I've found dealing with lots of uh, people who are stressful is when you peel the onion back, their finances exacerbate every other aspect of their stress in their life. And either they didn't manage them well, or they don't manage them well, or they didn't understand that that was uh, amplifying their problems. And then lastly, you know, this is more in uh, Sean's kind of uh, lane of expertise, but uh, the mental, the physical, the spiritual armor that we talk about in the military is completely appropriate in any line of work, including United. Um, humor is a, the, the most stressful times in my life have also been some of the funniest, both then and in hindsight. And so use some, uh, take a step back uh, and realize that there might be something funny in here. Find yourself a, a battle buddy, as we call them, someone who's honest with you that can point out the goodness of a situation when you can't. Um, and then anyway, so those are, those are some of the things, but that self-talk that you just mentioned, that's, that's much akin to the chair flying that I did all through my pilot training. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? It's exactly chair flying. Yeah. Yeah. But yet when you say self-talk, people say, Oh, that's too touchy feely. And then I'm going to yeah. say, uh, okay, well then I'd like you to say UPRT out loud and I'd like you to go back to the uh, double tree and chair fly this. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, guess what you were just doing? You were doing self-talk. <laughs> yeah. I use that with so my again, sons. I, I, I tell them to chair fly or mission plan, you know, mission plan yeah. it and then chair fly it. It makes it sound a little bit more, uh, I guess a uh, tough guy. This is great stuff, Gary. I really appreciate your insight. Uh, we all have different situations that we're dealing with regardless of our similarities. So what are some of the factors that might affect our abilities to be resilient, maybe detract from those abilities? I think if you have a lack of confidence in yourself, that's probably the biggest one, you know, if, and, and what, where do you get confidence? You get it from experience, you get it from training, you get it from overcoming adversity in the past. You get it for understanding that you have a, a, a family and a network, a social, a team, a crew, a flight attendant who's willing to, you know, whoever it might be. Uh, but someone always had it worse from me. I just documented that with a buddy of mine call. You know, I didn't have nearly the, the year he had that that had. But experience and confidence that is born out of uh, trial and error, you're going to lose sometimes uh, and you got to dust yourself off and take the lessons learned. I, I'm a big fan of that debrief card, you know, not uh, the debrief card is a good life model. What went wrong and why? What could have gone better and why? What would I do next time? Right. I, I've asked myself that at the end of uh, the day for 30 years. So confidence, uh, number one, the team is the number two, I would say, to answer your question. If you don't have a strong network, uh, geez, doing all this on your own, there's just you know, I, I, I hope for anyone listening that, that they never have to rely on the team. Uh, but if you have uh, real adversity, um, and even just simple adversity, it's nice to be able to talk to someone. It's nice to be able to, uh, someone to empathize and listen. And maybe they have a different perspective and can help shape it. Um, and maybe they can help you set those goals and take the action. And that's what I'm doing with that buddy of mine I got off the phone with. I'm gonna, we're going to help him uh, – uh, get back uh, uh, moving in the right direction. So this is a little bit, uh, little bit of an advertisement for Lynn and, and her uh, SOAR team, which is great. That's uh, I'm glad you're saying it like that. The last part of what you said are, are in terms of factors that influence it, I think it goes back to what we've already said and Sean has mentioned. It. It's how you view stress. 
And is this like, this is an enduring lifelong, you know, it's always me. And, you know, every time you hit the ball and it doesn't go where you want it, oh man, you're mad at yourself. Or do you say, no, you know what? I should have shifted my grip a little bit. I should have, you know, my backswing, learn something from it. Or do you view it? Life happens. It's not personal. It's temporary. And guess what? Uh, Game on. There's a challenge. The bigger the challenge, the more I'm going to dig in, the harder I'm going to work. But it's time to step up and execute, you know, and this is probably not good for your viewers, but marine parenting technique is when your kid comes in and has a stressful event, you say, oh, good. And they're like, dad, that's not good. Actually, it is good. Why is that? Well, because this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for you to overcome it. It's an opportunity for you to uh, help your friend. It's an opportunity for you to help yourself. This is an opportunity for you to get stronger because life's not fair. And um, Gary, I just want to add on to that, that resilience builds resilience. And that's why I love that they would, that a Marine parent would tell a child, this is great. This is making you stronger. This is challenging. But the more resilience we have, the more resilience we build, ideally, with all of the proper tools and techniques that we're talking about. But that's where people get tougher is being pushed to have to get back up again. It's not a one and done thing. Um, And then if I can just hit on your point about the confidence part, I believe confidence is the magic of just about everything of anything successful is going to determine your confidence. And here at the training center, when we're doing um, our basic NDOC class, uh, one of the things we talk about is that confidence and how that impacts the outcome, comparing a couple two different pilots who may take the same path to get here to United, um, but the success of one pilot who's confident over another pilot who has got a lot of self-doubt and his self-talk as he's walking into a simulator may be um, all about the things that in the past that went wrong. So he's taking those thoughts and energy with him about what went wrong. So that will be an interesting and challenging event for him versus a pilot who walks in thinking about all the things that he's done right and how he's prepared. Um, and he's comfortable. He's familiar with what he's doing to the best of his ability. It just makes up the, the difference of the success of the outcome. Um, I, I just love that you guys would encourage kids to see it that way. It's not wrong. It's making you better. You're learning. It's an opportunity. Gary, I I certainly appreciate your Marine Corps uh, view. I was in the Marine PLC program in college and somebody decided that my grades are too good to stay in the Marine Corps. So I went in the Air (laughs) Force. Um, But, uh, but I did, I do use that type of thing. I raised three boys, uh, two of which are in the military right now. And, and, um, one of my favorite lines was when they had that type of uh, stressful was, Hey, suck it up, buttercup. You got to go back in there and, and finish the game. It's time to, it's time to learn from your mistakes and, and get going. Now, um, you know, here at, uh, at United and, and what we do, Sean and uh, Rob Strickland discussed in our last episode, how cockpit resource management interfaces with resiliency, um, like a key component, if you will. And the learning progression and acceptance of CRM in our aviation community has evolved over time. Can you, Gary, better explain the parallels of mindfulness and CRM? Uh, Sure, Jim. Well, I can do it uh, probably on the CRM. I'm going to leave Sean to uh, touch the mindfulness because I'm not sure what that is. I I was accepted in the Marines and I didn't have that uh, 
that high GPA, uh, but I could do a lot of pull-ups and run fast. So uh, just kidding. Hey, you know, CRM model is we're, we're training not for, we're not training for when everything goes well, but for when it doesn't go well. And so sometimes in training we get, okay. Uh, or on the line, uh, you're not having complex emergencies. Thank God, because our maintainers, our folks uh, that, that take care of our planes are, they're doing a great job. Um, but it's, it's just another model. And I would argue if you don't have a model for how you approach resiliency, the CRM model and the guys that put that together applies both in the cockpit and out of the cockpit, you know, planning and decision-making is the first CRM skill. And we do that when we show up at ops. Um, but again, as I've said, no plan survives first contact, right? The weather changes, uh, the new airplane, whatever it is. Um, so that works in your own life too. Do you make short-term goals anymore? A lot of adults, they stop making goals. They don't, uh, they don't, uh, try and improve themselves. You know, uh, maybe they're you know happy with the status quo or you become complacent. Uh, I try not to do that as a plan. I mean, I plan to, and this is going to sound wrong, but you know, I joined CrossFit to, to, in, to hurt myself purposefully, right? <laughs> Push my mind. Mm-hmm. So, that's part of the plan is to get better. Uh, leadership effectiveness, that's at home, right? It's, it's whether you're an FO, a flight attendant, maintainer, it doesn't matter who you are. Everyone's a leader. Either lead with authority or with, without, it doesn't matter. But your kids uh, are leaders and they're expecting you to lead. Um, and so are you grading yourself on that at the end of the day? How, how well were you a leader in that? And unfortunately, some people don't realize until it's too late that they were a role model, right? Uh, you've all seen those folks. Situational awareness we talked about. Having that accurate assessment of your life and then communicating it to someone. You know, Are you talking to someone? Do you have a battle buddy? Can you tell your wife uh, things you're thinking without being judged and graded or your spouse or a good friend? Um, and, and this is probably the, the biggest part. When we talk about CRM, we always focus on it all comes down to communication. And people have been writing about resiliency for 3,000 years. And yet we're still seeing people that are unwilling to reach out, reach out, communicate with someone, tell them that you need some help. Everyone wants to help. And it's just the opposite. Most people are like, well, I don't want to burden anyone. It's not a burden. They want to help. That's because they're your friend. So reach out. Uh, and the whole monitor cross-check part of CRM, right? Check on your friends, establish your relationships. When, when I say, when I see monitor and cross-check, I'm talking about, Am I monitoring, cross-checking my life, my health, my fitness, my relationships? Are they strong? Do I pick up the phone? Do I text someone? Am I building that network that uh, either I can help them or they can help me? Not because I want anything back, just because they're my friend. Um, so do something. But at, you know, um, And then workload management. Uh, a lot of times, uh, we, I, I hate to say it, um, we don't workload manage our own personal lives nearly as well as we do in the cockpit. And uh, uh, that's something we all struggle with. You know, we waste time on rhetoric, blogs, mindless social media stuff. That is a waste of time. Okay. It's not furthering your goals. It's not furthering your family's goals. Uh, If you want to, so be effective and be efficient with your time and, and get up in the morning, you know, as Admiral McCraven used to say, make your bed. So at least if the day was terrible, you got a bed to sleep in, right? Um, and then finally, automation management. 
the way I put, I think of this, not only in the cockpit, but in life is you need to reduce your workload. And that's when we turn the autopilot on uh, and we're doing that so that it gives us time in the cockpit to do the top of the list, right? The planning decision-making when things go wrong, if my automation is available, I heavily automate. And then I can try and recapture my situation awareness. I can make a plan. I can talk with my teammate, my FO or the captain or whoever, flight attendants, dispatch, and put the plan together. But when you're automating, you're, what you're really doing is reducing your workload. And we, what we need to do in life is reduce the distractions. What would you stop doing, you know, if you had to stop doing two things in your life, what would they be so that you could be a better spouse, dad, friend, whatever? And we, get, and we waste so much time in, in today's social media environment and other things that it's just wasted time. And so in my view, if you don't have a model, and, and I use the uh, Marine Corps Leadership Traits and Principles as my model, and I have for 30 years, or at the end of the day, I look at it and say, how did I do? Uh, uh, was I, uh, did I seek responsibility and take responsibility for my action? Did I seek self-improvement, all that? But this is a good model. And I already talked about the debriefing card. Again, it takes two minutes. What went well today? Or do it with your family. Hey, what went well today? Ask your kids. Why? Why'd it go well? Oh, that's good. Let's talk about that. What could have gone better? Why? Oh, that's good. Hey, what would you do next time when, uh, when you uh, pulled out of the driveway and you hit dad's car? You know, <laughs> so, and, and I just had one of those too. Um, so uh, the bottom line is have a model. It doesn't matter what model. It just matters that you're grading yourself accurately and that you're trying to get better each day so that when you have the bad days, you know that you can get through them. And you're, as Sean said, your resiliency builds upon itself. You don't, you don't do it in one day. Uh, it's like planting a tree. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today though. So you better start planting. I love those analogies, uh, Gary. Um, and just on the mindfulness side, I think you hit it really well, honestly. Um, the only thing that I would say is that, you know, always have a model, just like you said, Gary, but considering not following your model or not following our CRM 10 model, um, when, you, when you are not being mindful and you're not being aware, you're compromising your model. And when you're in the flight deck and, and you're not being present, uh, you're not communicating, you're not using your planning decision-making or workload management skills, you're compromising the success of the flight and the overall um, intention of a safe arrival. Being aware is this essay, self-aware and situation but I think you hit on everything else as far as the mindfulness side. Um, I thought it sounded good. So to recap, let's talk a little bit about some of the takeaways and lessons learned from the episode and, uh, and uh, just touch on that before we end. Gary, what do you have? I, I think my takeaway is that uh, your attitude sets the course for your reaction. Uh, Self-discipline and willpower are required and, and they'll enable you uh, to benefit from like struggles. Not just survive them, not just get to the other side, but benefit and help others. Uh, but, and it's a big but, only if you prepare. That's my takeaway. I can certainly see how that can apply to those of us that are doing a recall, um, facing a furlough, a new commute, a change in career, or many of the compounded life events that our pilots now face. 
Sean, what is in store for us in the next Piloting Your Mind episode? Jim, on the next episode, we have Dr. Quay Snyder from AMAS here to talk about pilot stress. And then we're also going to hear a testimony from one of our own United pilots, Luis Perez. Uh, Luis has been using mindfulness techniques for quite some time, and he's used them uh, to mitigate physical and mental challenges and has some great stories to share with us. That should be fascinating. For those of you listening, thank you for turning into the United MEC Leading Edge podcast, Piloting Your Mind series. To our guests, Gary and Sean, we greatly appreciate all of your hard work, especially your observations and insights. On behalf of the United MEC and all of our ALPA volunteers, fly safe and stay healthy. I'm Captain James Belton.